Thank you very much for choosing this BDSM podcast. We're glad to have you on board with us. I'm really happy to have my guest today, Dr. Blaze Williams from the United States of America. So he's the director of the VCU Run Lab and he's an associate professor with skills in physical therapy, health and human performance. Specifically, his interest lies in the biomechanics and pathomechanics of running injuries and this is the expertise that we're going to tap into today to help you within your clinical practice with runners, keeping them healthy and managing their injuries that they may have. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Dr. Williams. Thanks for having me, Liam. Perfect. And now just to let the listener know, this is going to be the first of a mini podcast series. We're going to talk about readiness to run and when is your athlete ready to run. And the second one will be on the aged runner. So make sure you watch out for that. You have introduced a running readiness scale. Where did this come about? And can you tell the read, uh, listeners a little bit about this, please? Sure. So um, in our physical therapy clinic and in my practice, um, I probably see 90% of my patients um, who are runners. For those of you who have seen runners, uh, you know that regardless of the condition that the runner is in, when they come into your clinic, they may be, have a slight injury or they may be walking around in a, in a boot. Their first question to you is, when can I go back to running? That can often be a, a challenging question to answer because from a basic physical therapy perspective, medical perspective, we may not know the answer to that right away. And, and, and so oftentimes our answer to them is we'll see or let's, let's get through the, through the exam. And that's, that's not often enough or, or, or uh, the runner is going to not respond positively to that a lot of times. Um, so in our clinic over the past couple of years, we've, we've tried to develop a series of objective measures that we can use to determine whether or not a runner is ready to return to competition or return to even training for for running. And initially, we started out with a with a number of different functional tasks um, that we would administer to the runner. Probably about ten of those tests, we would just administer them in a in a, in a somewhat haphazard way. Well. Over time, we realized that that was, that was too long and it wasn't, wasn't objective enough. So as time went on, we, we have developed the, this, this running readiness scale into a series of, of five tests. The tests are specific to running, um, or at least the, the tests are specific to muscles that are used during running. Each of the tests is administered for one minute with about 30 seconds rest in between. The therapist or physician uh, gives those tests in a very specific order and then determines whether or not based on some some criteria of, of performance, whether or not they pass or fail those those individual tests. And then they can determine whether or not the runner is is ready to either begin a running program or return to run after they've been injured. That's kind of how, how it was um, originally developed. It was developed as a really at the um, indirect request of the runners to give them something that says they're ready or not ready to to return to to running. You mentioned a battery of tests there, so let's put this in a case example. And as you mentioned, many of our listeners will have runners coming into their clinic later on this afternoon or maybe next week. So I have a middle-aged female runner, and she comes into you 
and she says, listen, Dr. Williams, I've been running for X amount of time and I'm just getting a bit of leg pain at the moment. You know, I need, I need to know, can I go back to running each time I try and go back? This pain keeps coming. I haven't ran for a couple of weeks. So what are the tests involved? The first thing I do, Liam, is, is go through my, my standard, um, you know, medical examination or, or, or table exam. So I, w- I would look at the standard things that we all look at when any patient comes in with an overuse injury or, um, or what we suspect to be an overuse injury. So it goes through that first, go through a good subjective examination, get a, a standard objective examination. Um, and everything kind of clears out and, and, that, and that patient is able to run um, a little bit. The battery of tests, oftentimes I would not do it on the first day because they are in enough discomfort or pain that they wouldn't be able to um, complete it. I might do it on the second or third visit. But once I'm able to administer that test, the test, like I said, consists of, of five um, tests that are um, one minute in length. The tests are hopping, uh, a standing hop test against the wall where they're hopping repeatedly at 160 beats per minute. We give a metronome and they, um, they repeat that test for, for one minute where they're hopping to a, to a spot that's about four inches above where their raised hands are. And uh, we're looking for certain criteria. I'll talk about what some of those criteria are here in a second. Um, so hopping a plank, uh, so just a standard on elbows plank, uh, repeated 30 seconds each um, single leg squats, a uh, step-ups test, repeated step-ups on a six-inch step, um, leading with uh, right leg first for 30 seconds and left leg first for 30 seconds, and then finally a 90-90 squat hold um, with a ball behind them against the wall. With those tests, we're looking for certain criteria. It's more about the quality of the movement. So for instance, with the hops, we're looking that number one, they can maintain the 160 beats per minute. We're also looking that they don't flat foot, that they're bouncing off their toes and that their knees aren't coming together into, a, into sort of a valgus position. Uh, with the plank, we're looking for them to maintain that very level plank position, that their hips don't go up into a uh, raise up towards the ceiling or drop down towards the floor or that they drop their head repeatedly or start shifting left to right. This that they're, that they maintain a very solid plank for the, um, for the single leg squats. Of course, we're looking for the knee to maintain, um, sort of that natural tracking over top of the toes that it's not going into valgus, that the hips not dropping and that they don't lose balance repeatedly as they go through those single leg squats. And I should mention those single leg squats are also being done at, at that 160 um, beats per minute. For the step ups, we're looking for, again, another um, step up 100, at 160 beats per minute. And uh, that again, no valgus, um, that they don't start dropping their head, almost bending forward at the waist. Um, that's another kind of key that they're not being able to maintain good quad and, and glute strength. And then fi- and, and maintaining the 160 beats per minute, as I mentioned. And then finally, with the ball squats, they need to maintain that 90-90 position that they don't start dropping their head forward, dropping their hips towards the floor, or pushing their hips up towards the ceiling. So there's some, there's some criteria that we use. Those are the big ones that I mentioned, and it's pass-fail. It's very clear to tell whether someone can complete these things or not complete them. And so uh, in the clinic right now, we're using uh, currently the criteria we're using is they have to pass all five. Um, that makes it really, really easy. Now, I, I'll, I can speak later a little bit about um, some validation and reliability stuff that we've, that we've tested and, and putting out into publication soon. 
talks about what the actual cutoffs or criteria might be. But what I've been using clinically is you need to pass all five. If you don't pass all five, then we start to work back into a, a, a series of, of exercises or circuits that, that helps the patient work towards passing that test. Some really clear and practical pearls of knowledge there. And I think the listener will be able to sort of build some of those into their practice. So why are you using those tests? Is it specific muscles that it address? And are those muscles are what you have deemed from your experience important for successful running? Yeah, absolutely. One of the most important muscles um, for gait, uh, both walking and running, is of course our gastroxoleus complex. And um, so two of the tests address the gastroxoleus, both the hops, the repeated hops and the step-ups will, will guess, uh, address the strength of the gastroxoleus. The other muscles that are, that are important and have been shown to be important in running and running-related injuries are of course quadriceps, the glutes or the hip muscles, and then our core musculature. And so you can see how, for instance, the plank addresses the core musculature, the wall squat or wall sit will address the core musculature and the hips and the quads. Um, the step ups addresses the quads, the single leg squats addresses the hip musculature and the, and the quads as well. So these, these are exercises that we've whittled down really from those 10 or 12 tests that we originally did to really address functionally what we feel like to be the muscles that are most important during running. Of course, running has a component of a single leg, and that's why we use the single leg squats. Um, and, and running is nothing but a series of single leg landings. So if we can have a functional test that mimics landing during running, a single leg squat is a, is a very good way of doing that in a controlled way. There's some objectivity to, to what we've done as far as, as choosing the muscles. Um, if you go into some of the literature and look at um, how much EMG activity is present during these, these activities, you'll see that the, the levels are fairly high for the quadriceps and the glutes for a single leg squat or is fairly high for um, jumping on two legs um, during, wall, uh, during wall hops. They may not be the most perfectly isolated activities for those muscles, but they're functional and they, and they activate those muscles um, at, a, at a very high level. So that's, that's why we've chosen those activities. Would it be true to be saying that you're not allowed to run until you're able to land then? Is, is that what our listeners should be taking as one of the, the take-home messages from this? I think that's a really good way of, of saying it, Liam, because um, I, I think that landing is a very important precursor to running. And so if you think about it, the tests that we've put forward here, there's uh, five tests. So that's five minutes with 30 seconds in between those five tests. So we'll call that two to two and a half minutes in between. So we're, we're looking at seven to, to seven and a half minutes worth of activity. Most people, they are our average runners here that are, that are coming in that are injured, are not going to run seven and a half minute miles. So if you can't run one mile or stay active in that way for, for one mile, what makes you think that you can go out and train for three miles or four miles or five miles? So we really want patient to be able to complete this test partly for endurance purposes, but partly to say that they can maintain good form for at least seven and a half minutes. It's the very least. 
most of these are landing or functionally related to landing sorts of activities before they can actually go out and run. So it's a good way of putting it. It might be the first time I've had a good idea. That's fantastic. <laughs> so if we quickly go back to the clinical case, I said we had a middle-aged female runner. She had some issues. She's come to see yourself. And, and you let us know that it might be a couple of assessments before you start to get to do the test, et cetera. So let's say that um, you've been working with her to address some of the issues that you'd picked up with those objective tests. And she's now got to the point where she's passing all five of those tests. Where do we go from there? Is it a case of you have a protocol of she's allowed to run a certain amount of distance? Because I'm sure most of us have experienced where they, where a patient will be cleared to run and then will go back to doing their usual seven kilometer, seven mile run straight away. This is one of those ones where I have to put a, a disclaimer or kind of a, a conditions on it because it sort of depends and it depends on, on a number of different things. It sort of depends on the level of the runner. Has this person completed five or six marathons already in their past and perhaps is functioning at a, at a very high level? They might be the person who's running six minute miles or seven minute miles. They're, they're a, a, an accomplished runner that can run a three hour marathon versus the person who perhaps it was training for their first 5k or 10k and got injured and has never run more than five or six miles total. So I have to put that, that sort of qualifier on it to make sure that, because not the, the person who runs the three hour marathons probably not going to respond very well to me telling them that they have to run one minute on one minute off. I still might try that, but it's not, it sort of depends on the level of the runner. Um, but that, with that being said, the overall philosophy of once they pass the test is, number one, I'm going to give them a number of different cross-training types of activities that are very, very similar to the types of tests that we gave them for them to continue to participate in on a fairly regular basis, a couple of times a week. And I can, I can define that um, here in a second. But what I'm also going to do is, is get them back to running through a very progressive and slow sort of, sort of um, process. With a lot of runners, particularly if they're novice, she's going to take them about five weeks to get back. And that sounds very, very slow. But, but if they've not been running at all, or they've been severe, significantly injured, it seems very reasonable for them to kind of progress over a month to get back to where they are. Typically have them run one minute on, one minute off, about every other day for a week. And then each week, I'll have them double that the time that they run. So the next week, two minutes on, one minute off. And the time that they do that is, is, is right around 20 minutes progressing up to, to 30 or 40 minutes. Um, we might be able to, I, I might be able to put a, a link or something like this, something like that to, to the listeners for, for this. But each week, double. Um, every other day. So one minute on, one minute off. First week, two minutes on, next week, four minutes on, next week, eight minutes on, next week, 16 minutes on, next week. And then by the fifth week, they should be able to run by for about 30 minutes. For the average runner, that's the runners that we see in our clinic. That's, that's pretty good. That's going to get them to about a three, four miles kind of, kind of distance. Then we can start to work on distance from there before they start to work on intensity. I always try to get them to work on distance slowly before they start to work on speed or intensity. That would be my approach with, with that runner. 
to try to convince them to, to, to take that four to six weeks to progress up to the distance that they uh, are to the, you know, to returning to run. I like that clear progression. I think that's something I'm going to integrate certainly uh, from tomorrow into my practice rather than sort of just trying to make it up in my head as I go along. And as you mentioned, for all the listeners, we will include links to various elements of this podcast and the literature that's been involved in creating your thoughts and practices around helping people return to run. What do you think that are the common pitfalls or things that we do wrong when returning people to running, not just runners, but any athlete that's been off legs and gets them back? What, what, what is it that the common things that people say to you and things that you think we could try and improve on? I think with runners, um, and, and like, as you say, all athletes, they're all very, very anxious to get back to activity. There's a couple things I think that we, we probably need to hold pretty strong to that, that we don't, I think oftentimes we, we believe, believe our, our patients maybe more than we should. They really want to get back and, and um, they're going to tell us what they think we want to hear. So having some objective criteria to say, hey, look, I believe you. I believe you're feeling great. Why don't we just see if you can do these, couple, these easy couple of things, these couple of objective tests, and, and see if you're, you're where you need to be. So number one, um, I think it gives us a, a level or at least a, a boundary by which we can say, I think you're ready or you're not ready. It at least gives us a, a bargaining point to, to go with. And, and I think that leads into the second, the second part of this is I think we, 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 get, we try to allow our athletes to get back to full activity or if you want to say competition too quickly, whether it's an ACL injury or whether it's returning to, to run for recreation. I think a lot of times they're looking for that you're cleared sort of terminology. And that to, to oftentimes to athletes means they can just go back to doing what they did when right before they got hurt. And we don't use a reasonable progression, a fairly slow progression to get them back to that point. Uh, I'll use the example again of ACL where I think a lot of times we, we do a, a, a hop test with our ACL patients. Um, they go to the doctor and the doctor says, this amount of time has passed. Um, you look symmetrical to me. You're strong based on an on a isokinetic dynamometer test. And you pass your hop test, return to and then fill in the blank here. And if you say return to activity, return to sport, I think oftentimes that athlete may, interprets that as return to full full uh, level of competition. And I, I don't think that that's what we intend as healthcare practitioners, but I think that's oftentimes what happens. So I think we need to do a better job of holding our patients back and, and, and giving them some, some distinct guidelines of what they should be doing to return to activity or return to sport. Thank you very much again on behalf of the BGSM community. Oh, thank you, Liam. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you to the listener for downloading this podcast. Remember that there will be another podcast coming up soon on Aged Runners with Dr. Blaze Williams. I hope that you've enjoyed this, learned lots of stuff that you can put into your clinical practice straight away. And if you want to engage further with the BGSM, you can do so through our various social media channels. And I would direct you to the app where we've got lots of fantastic content and certainly we've just grouped podcasts. So if you want to see some other podcasts on running and running injuries, it's all up there for you on the app.